Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Belarus backlash, the EU promises tighter sanctions over the border crisis. Digital diplomacy, Presidents Biden and Xi prepare for their virtual summit. And a Bernie Barney, Elon Musk turns Twitter troll once again. It's Monday, let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move and another Monday reset. President Biden and Xi prepare for their Zoom tete-a-tete. Japan's economy heads into reverse, truly a Q3 to forget. Elon Musk and Bernie Sanders battle it out in a nasty Twitter duet. Plus, a second term for Fed Chair Powell still not set. It's an infinite vet. Is it time for Powell to sweat? Well, I can tell you, U.S. investors see no reason to fret, at least not yet. Yes, I'm done. In fact, it's just the opposite. Futures looking strong with tech set to rise to records as bond yields ease a rebound after Wall Street's first losing week in over a month. But in the meantime, European stocks still near records and a firm start to the week in Asia. Japan rallied even as third quarter GDP fell by a weaker than expected 3% yearly rate. The supply chain crisis still a challenge for Japan's exporters. The Japanese cabinet set to approve a new round of stimulus this week, which is good news, I think, over there in China. Better than expected reads on retail sales and factory production. And a big debut day for a brand new Beijing stock exchange intended to help small and medium-sized businesses raise cash. 81 firms, in fact, making their debut, including 10 IPOs that soared an average of 200%. Lots to discuss, as always, but we begin the drivers at the Polish border. The European Union set to ramp up sanctions over the buildup of migrants at the Belarus-Poland border. Officials say targets include airlines and travel agencies helping people to get to the frontier of the EU. This morning, thousands began moving from a temporary camp in the Belarus to a Polish border checkpoint. Rumours had spread that a travel corridor to Germany was about to open up. Fred Pleitgen joins us now from the Polish side of the border. Fred, great to have you with us. So clearly the migrants believing something was about to change. Any truth to that rumour? Yeah, no, absolutely not, Julia. And it's actually mm. one of the things where the European Union, Germany uh, and uh, and also Poland, quite frankly, said that none of these rumors were true. They believe that these rumors were in part, at least, uh, being spread by Belarusian uh, authorities, of course, in part uh, to, to make those people that we saw uh, on that video, to make them make that move from the camp to the uh, border checkpoint. It was quite interesting because you had some of the messaging coming from the Poles uh, over the past, uh, let's say, 24 hours or so, where they said, don't believe any of these rumors. In fact, when you're here in the border area, you constantly get text messages from the Polish authorities, which no doubt the uh, the folks on the other side of the border get as well, telling them that those rumors are not true. The German government, by the way, uh, also uh, sent out uh, a message on its official uh, Twitter feed saying that rumors that there was going to be a corridor to Germany, that everybody could transit to Germany, that that was not, uh, that that was not true. So clearly, uh, the Poles believe that they are in what, what they call under a hybrid attack by the Belarusian uh, authorities. They say that over the past couple of days, there have been many, many attempts to try and get through the border. And they also say that the Belarusian forces have tried to facilitate those attempts as well. We actually have been in touch with some migrants who are inside or who were inside that camp or now at the border. 
And they say that Belarusian authorities actively tried to get them to attack the border fence. They told us that in text messages and also in audio messages as well. The polls for their side, for their part, have said over the weekend that the border was attacked, among others, by Belarusian forces themselves. They say they have video, which they also disseminated, of a Belarusian ground vehicle trying to tear down the border fence and using strobe light to blind the Polish soldiers. They also said that the Belarusians have given tear gas canisters to some of the migrants to attack Polish forces. So as you can see, the situation here in the border area, very, very heated. But again, the Poles are saying that border is not going to open up, Julia. No, and we'll head to the Belarusian side of the border as well to uh, get an update from there later in the show. Fred, great to have you with us. Fred Plykin there. Managing expectations, a senior White House official says a virtual meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping in a few hours is not expected to produce any deliverables. The two men are heading into the talks with very different political fortunes, too. David Culver is in Beijing for us. We couldn't underscore that more. I think President Xi just having laid the path to a historic third term, President Biden, to put it lightly, uh, embattled, I think, and both men know this. The bar for success here is very low. Perhaps it's simply that the two are talking, David, and if they continue to do so, it will be a success. I think that's exactly it. It's the, hey, let's stay Mm. in touch after this. That's the hope out of all of it. To your point, deliverables, anything concrete that might come out of it, well, there's downplaying on both sides that they'll get to that point. But so long as they can create, Julia, this guardrail, as one senior U.S. administration official has described it, so as to continue the relationship in a competitive nature and avoid intended and more importantly, unintended conflict between the two largest economies in the world. This is the first face-to-face, albeit kind of a work-from-home edition, if you will, for the two leaders since President Biden became President Biden. Of course, before that, they met many of times. We're expecting this to last several hours. They're going to cover a range of topics. I mean, you and I have talked about the many different hot-button issues, everything from Taiwan to trade to human rights to threats to the international order as the U.S. has raised concerns with China in particular. And those are going to be the points of contention. Those will be the ones that you certainly should not expect to see any sort of agreement come out on. But then there are aspects of collaboration, things that they might actually be able to move forward with together. And that would likely be in the area of climate change and battling that in a joint effort, given that both the U.S. and China are the two biggest carbon polluters in the world, and then health security. So this timing, though, is worth noting. And you point out the juxtaposition of uh, the two leaders right now. You've got President Biden in the U.S., who's dealing with low approval ratings, who has a struggle with uh, trying to win over uh, Republicans and moving forward with things like the infrastructure bill, which he's finally able to do today. And I will say that one senior administration official, again, pointed that out, saying that before these virtual meetings get underway with the two leaders, that he's going to be signing that infrastructure bill. They point that out so as to show that there is some strength coming into this from the U.S. side, but certainly does not speak to the confidence that's coming in from the Chinese side. President Xi Jinping coming off what was a historic meeting last week, that plenary session ending with the top party officials elevating Xi Jinping to an undisputed supreme ruler level. This essentially paves the way for him to continue into a third term. It puts him at the level of Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping, paramount leaders here in China. So he's going to go back into this virtual meeting now with a lot of confidence. He's also backed here with a rising nationalism. 
it's something that in combined nature you would question whether or not there'll be any sort of concession and on either side really it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case and ultimately it's just going to be about keeping that line of communication open julia to avoid any sort of conflict between these two countries yeah, critically important in the short term. The uh, the problem with endless or infinite power is there's no one to blame if you get it wrong, but it's not necessarily a short-term worry uh, for Xi Jinping. And, of course, to your point, um, right. just keeping those lines of communication in the interim open is um, is a win. David Cover in Beijing for us. Thank you for your perspective, as Thanks, always. Julia. Tesla trials. Shares losing ground pre-market again after a week of heavy losses. CEO Elon Musk offloaded nearly $7 billion worth of shares last week. He also clashed with 80-year-old Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, over the weekend. After the U.S. senator demanded the wealthy pay their fair share of taxes, Musk tweeted, I keep forgetting that you're still alive. Paula Monica joins me now. Another day, another tweet. It's an O.E. long moment. But he did seem to hit a nerve, I think, Senator Bernie Sanders, because Musk was still firing tweets off 11 hours later saying Sanders is a taker, not a maker. What do we make of this, Paul? Yeah, it's amusing, to put it mildly, Julia, because let's realize Senator Sanders did not point out Elon Musk by name. Clearly, you can surmise that Elon Musk was one of the people that he was talking about, but you could probably say the same thing for Jeff Bezos, for Bill Gates, for Mark Zuckerberg. This wasn't a tweet directed at Elon Musk specifically. Elon obviously took it as such and then ran with it. It does beg the question why someone that is worth that much needs to be on Twitter with these insults, because there's no civil discourse that he goes back and says, You want me to sell more shares, Bernie? Say the word. I just struggle to understand why someone could be so thin-skinned when they're worth that much money. If I had that much money, I'd be just not listening to anyone. I'd be pretty happy. Yeah, this is unique to Elon Musk, though. And there are those that would look at this and say, look, this is a career politician facing off against a a career innovator or a career troll, quite frankly. Just put the phone down. But um, he made it personal. Elon, by responding to this, when to your point, there could have been plenty that, that Bernie Sanders was um, sort of pointing the finger at here. It was an opportunity to, for one of the bears and um, the big short Michael Burry came forward in a tweet and said, let's face it, borrowed, Elon Musk borrowed against 88.3 million shares, sold all his mansions, moved to Texas and is asking Bernie Sanders whether we should sell more stock. He doesn't need cash. He just wants to sell Tesla. It was sort of an opportunity for uh, the critics to wade in once again. And uh, I have to say, um, he's a brilliant mind. He's a great innovator, but he's in some ways the biggest wild card for Tesla investors too, Elon Musk. Yeah, this is, this is something that I've, I've talked to you and I think uh, Richard Quest on his show about numerous times. I've written about it. What I fail to understand with Tesla, given how much of a wild card Elon Musk is, one might say loose cannon. There is such a difference between the way this company is run. You hear all the stories about him sleeping at the factory. And there's really no one that comes to mind as a COO level person that could step in if for some reason Musk, you know, wasn't around anymore. And there could be a variety of reasons for him to not be around anymore. I'm not going to get into that. When you look at SpaceX, his other company, Gwen Shotwell, one of the first employees at SpaceX, widely respected If Musk had to step away from SpaceX, 
One, obviously, it's not a public company, so there would be less concern on Wall Street. But I think a lot of people would respect the fact that Gwen Shotwell could just step right in, run SpaceX without missing a beat. I don't see anyone at Tesla that can do that. Yeah. I mean, as we've talked about before, Tesla relies on the PR. It doesn't have marketing expenses. So Elon Musk, in many ways, is the guy that's out there selling the cars by creating uh, the noise surrounding a Tesla itself. But sometimes that noise and that innovation has a has a price. Um, what more can we say? Very little. We Quite say expensive more. to take yeah. it private now. <laughs> yes. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. Here are some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Closing arguments in the Carl Rittenhouse trial are set to begin in the next hour. And the city of Kenosha, Wisconsin, is bracing for possible violence. 500 National Guard troops are on standby. Police say Rittenhouse shot and killed two men and wounded a third during racial justice protests last year. British officials have now declared a taxi explosion in Liverpool on Sunday a terrorist incident. Police have arrested four men in their 20s in connection with the blast. It occurred as the taxi approached a hospital. The passenger died. The driver, who escaped, is being praised for his efforts to minimise the damage. An American journalist has been freed from prison in Myanmar just days after being sentenced to 11 years. Danny Fenster was convicted on charges brought by the military, which took control of the country in February. The junta hasn't explained why he was freed, but it follows negotiations with former U.S. diplomat Bill Richardson. And CNN's Ivan Watson joins us now and has been following the story. Ivan, what more do we know? An 11-year prison sentence released just days later. Yeah, I mean, this time on Friday, Danny Fenster's fate looked awful because not only had he just been sentenced to 11 years in prison, he was also being charged with violating a counterterrorism law, which could have gotten him life in prison. And then suddenly we get this announcement where uh, the former governor Richardson uh, says that Fenster has been released and is on his way to, to Qatar. He's thanking the Norwegian and Qatari governments for helping uh, the Fenster family, putting out their own statement, uh, expressing, of course, that they're overjoyed that he's been released and on his way home and grateful to people like Ambassador Richardson for helping negotiate his release. Richardson traveled to Myanmar at the beginning of this month and met with the head of the uh, Myanmar military junta, which seized power on February 1st. Danny Fenster was a Detroit native who'd been managing editor of a local outlet called Frontier Myanmar, and he was detained while trying to fly out of the country in May and has spent nearly six months behind bars. Uh, and he is just one of more than 100 journalists that have been arrested, have been detained since that military coup on February 1st. Uh, it's clear that Ambassador Richardson contributed to negotiating this release. He had also, uh, during his visit, gotten the release of a local woman who had worked for uh, the Richardson Center. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has thanked the U.S. embassy officials in Yangon, as well as Richardson, for securing this, uh, helping secure this release. Uh, and he's gone on to say, Blinken, that he calls for the release of other people detained in Myanmar 
anymore. And that's important because the United Nations High Commissioner for uh, Human Rights uh, says that there's still probably more than 40 journalists currently behind bars, as well as at least eight news organizations that have been shut down completely. Many others have been forced to suspend their operations, part of a much broader crackdown that has been taking place uh, since the military swept a civilian elected government from power and began a deadly crackdown on forms of dissent there. Back to you. Thank you for that update there, Ivan Watson. All right, so to come on First Move, Shell Shock, the oil giant ditches the Netherlands, its historic structure and its name to go British. And room ratings with a difference. Booking.com plans to highlight environmentally friendly travel options. We'll discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Green on the screen for U.S. stock market futures with tech set for a takeoff up some one and a half percent. Take a look at that. The major averages beginning the week less than one percent from record highs with lots in store for investors. Major U.S. retailers announced Q3 results and we get a new read on U.S. retail sales, too. The big question, are Americans cutting back on purchases as prices rise? Data out late last week shows consumer sentiment hitting a 10-year low due in part to the higher cost of living. In the meantime, Bitcoin beginning the week higher. The bulls hoping to tap into the power of Taproot, the most extensive upgrade to the Bitcoin blockchain in years. Taproot is intended to boost privacy and efficiency and to help companies better tap into crypto's potential. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson praising the COP26 agreement reached in Scotland over the weekend, calling it the, quote, death knell for coal power. Yesterday evening, we finally came to the kind of game-changing agreement that the world needed to see. Almost 200 countries have put their name to the Glasgow Climate Pact, marking a decisive shift in the world's approach to tackling climate emissions setting a clear roadmap to limiting the rise in global temperatures to 1.5 degrees and marking the beginning of the end for coal power. Many others, though, not so happy with the agreement, saying the language was watered down and failed to measure up to the urgency of the climate crisis. One of few companies chosen to address world leaders was $30 billion Australian mining giant Fortescue. The firm also one of 25 founder members of the Biden administration-led First Movers Coalition, a platform for building private sector demand to speed up clean energy technology, innovation and confront the climate crisis. Fortescue's chairman, Australian iron ore magnate Andrew Forrest, is on a mission to decarbonise operations by 2030 using green hydrogen, green ammonia and renewable electricity. This would be a full decade decade before rival miners BHP and Vale. And I'm pleased to say he joins us now. Andrew, fantastic to have you on the show once again. I know you are meeting with the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, US President Joe Biden. How would you describe both the conversations and the outcome of COP26? Look, our conversations were very strong. I got a very warm welcome from your president to bring the technology which we're now breaking in Australia for ships, for trucks, for trains, for mobility, fertilizers, for steel. Very strong first invitation to visit the United States and bring all that technology into the United States and to bring our capability of developing very large green hydrogen projects around the world and also do that in the United States. So 
I feel very strongly that we that there is a appetite around the world now for green hydrogen. Certainly, the EU Commissioner could not have been more welcoming, saying, "Whatever comes out of uh, COP26, what we know will is green hydrogen." You know, one of the most memorable things from our conversation before you were heading to COP26 was when you said, I burn a billion litres of diesel a year. That's not even to mention the maritime or bunker oil, which we also burn in our ships, which just blew my mind. And I know is part of the reason why you're so focused on a number of alternatives, not just um, hydrogen, as you mentioned there. But this was one of the things that you and your company went to COP26 to say, look, this is the future. I know you're now in in Germany, which I think is a case of preaching to the choir because they feel very passionately about this. Again, what was the response when you said, we think this is the way forward? Oh, look, it, it has been strong. I've had, look, I had about a dozen ministers of various governments come for me and say, look, we kind of got a bit locked in in fossil fuel hydrogen. How do we get out of that? Um, and so I, I helped them as much as I could. But what I know for sure is that every climate change minister, every energy minister, every president, every prime minister of every country who attended COP26 now understand, they may not have before, but they now understand there's a practical, implementable solution called green hydrogen, which can stop global warming, which can replace fossil fuels, which can create the fertilizers, the steel, the industrial products that we need. Could be green ammonia, could be green electricity. It will definitely also be the master of all those, which is green hydrogen. And they all understand now that by COP27, they must take this into all their plans. Yeah, the alternatives here are key because you and I also discussed the importance of the damage that methane gas does. It's contributed, what, around just shy of a third of uh, the warming, the global warming that we've seen since industrial times. And there was this big global methane pledge made at COP26. And yet China, Russia, India, Iran and your own country, Australia, didn't sign. I mean, that's surely very disappointing, personally disappointing. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think your focus on methane is 100 percent correct. Liquid natural gas, or LNG, what a clever marketing term, liquid natural gas. What it is, is methane. Liquid natural gas is just 100% methane, so it is truly dangerous. When you hear this sales pitch, I think it's gone quiet, but we used to hear it a lot. Gasify everything to reduce global warming. Actually, you'll speed up global warming. So your focus right now on methane, which is just LNG in another name, is really important. The fact that Australia didn't, I can say, come from the farming community where they, where they just did not have the information. This is about information. Right. Farmers don't have the information that there is an additive to feed, which is a seaweed, which will almost eliminate, if not drastically reduce, but almost eliminate the burping of methane. Um, but that is the smaller part of where the global warming emissions really come from in Australia, and that's the liquid natural gas industry, LNG, and they use the farmers to push back hard. Sadly, the farmers, uh, I don't think, had the information. They allowed themselves to be, if you like, a bit of a pawn in the game. But come COP27, all those games, all those tricks, all, all, all that greenwashing, I say to you, by COP27, all those tricks, all those shanksters, they are going to be very embarrassed. Really? You think that it can happen in the space of just the short time between COP26 and COP27 that we can have 
greater information, greater understanding and actually a reflection on what we didn't achieve in, in COP26? Yeah, look, I don't look at things as a, as a point in time. As a scientist, you always look at the trend. The trend here is accelerating. The information available to the world, thanks to CNN, thanks to media generally, the information being available of the reality of the, of the point where global warming becomes unstoppable is coming. The point where nothing we can do to stop an accelerating warming of our planet uh, that point is out there. We, as scientists, we don't know when or where it. So when it actually is, but we know it's there, and we're doing the calculations as fast as we can to try and put a date on it. But first of all, we need to get reliable information out of the methane industry, the LNG industry. Once we know of their true emissions, their true waste, they're venting into the sky, then we can really hone down that point of no return for humanity. Now. This is really serious. People who deny global warming, I have to say, you have your head in the sand. It's happening to us right now. It will get a lot worse if we don't put in a practical, implementable solution. And now all governments of the world know after COP26, there is a practical, implementable solution. And people around the world are going to ask, well, if there is, why aren't we using it? You know, there were so many questions, again, that I have for you. One was the car industry, where we had four of the five biggest car makers saying um, that they're not signing a pledge to be fully zero emission cars and vans by 2025. But the other one, I think, that was fascinating for me, having just spoken to um, one of the biggest container shippers in the world, Maersk, was that you're saying to the marine industry, look, you can do net zero by 2040, not 2050, where they've planned. And again, you're sort of putting your technology and your innovation where your mouth is. And I know you're converting a vessel to run totally on green ammonia. How practical is that in terms of cost scaling up? Can you give me a time horizon? Because you're kind of saying, I think, that you think we can do this 10 years earlier uh, if you're making this 2040 call rather than 2050, which the industry is saying. Yeah, look, if you don't have solutions, you have got to put 2050 out there without a clue as to how to achieve yeah. it. If it feels like that. <laughs> yeah, well, but exactly right. But as we have solutions, as we know now, because we've tested in a full ship engine that green ammonia really works, as we've now purchased a ship and we'll be, we'll be doing the small amount of re-gearing, injectors and the like, fuel fuel storage systems, the small amount of regearing to get that ship running on green ammonia, it'll be in full service operation, you know, uh, with, with all offshore rigs that'll be surfacing those. So it's going to be a hard working ship, but running on green ammonia. As soon as we, we have all, this, all the data in from that, we're of course going to convert one of our huge iron ore carriers to, to green ammonia. Now, once that happens, there is no excuse for the shipping industry not to go green. I mean, they can argue about it, but they no longer have an excuse. And the very company you talked about, Maersk, Maersk are one of the world leaders on this. Maersk are leaning into this hard. And I'd say to every other shipping company and shipping industry, listen to Maersk, listen to us. There are solutions. Once we demonstrate it to you, then it's time to switch. Andrew, fantastic to chat to you. It's great to see all the different avenues. I know you're doing things with different countries in the aviation sector, marine. It's, it's um, fascinating to watch you take action. Thank you. Um, definitely a first mover in my eyes. <laughs> Andrew Forrest, Chairman right, of Fortescue Metals. Great to have you on the show again. Thank you. The market opens next. Bye -bye. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move and the curtain rising on another big week on Wall Street with stocks close to records as bond yields ease around the world. Investors still betting that rates will stay lower for longer and give continued support to stock markets too. Morgan Stanley saying in a new research note that the Federal Reserve will not hike rates until 2023, believing that inflation will soon moderate. I think investors are uh, buying that story too, at least for now. Tesla shares meantime pulling back further after a 15% drop last week. The possibility that Elon Musk will continue to sell shares in a piecemeal fashion is triggering ongoing uncertainty in the share price. Boeing, meanwhile, is boosting the blue chips after receiving a big aircraft order from Emirates at the Dubai Air Show. And we return now to our top story. The European Union is set to toughen sanctions over the escalating migrant crisis in Belarus. In the past hours, a crowd of thousands has built up at the Polish border checkpoint. The Polish Border Guard Service says the situation is very tense and very dangerous. Matthew Chance joins us now from the Belarus side. Matthew, great to have you on the show. When we were talking earlier with Fred Pleitkin about the rumours that there was going to be some help to get across the border and that got the migrants there excited and shifted them. What's the situation there? And I saw your breath earlier. How cold is it? Um, I'm having a few technical difficulties here in you, Julia. But yeah, I mean, I, I heard that last bit. It is getting increasingly cold um, to answer your question. Take a look over here. Look, it's so cold that the families that have their children here have been spending the last half an hour wrapping them up in these sleeping bags so they can try and get some sleep as the temperatures plunge here on the border between um, uh, Belarus and Poland. Dramatic scenes have been unfolding here uh, over the course of the past couple of hours. Refugee camp, um, which was in the forest over there, was abandoned almost completely over a period of just a few minutes as people rushed to the border here because they believed the Poles were about to open a humanitarian corridor to let them through, even though they've been told categorically by the Polish side that they were not going to do that. What they've been confronted with is this razor wire, these riot police, these border control police, and these water cannon here. You know, they're not firing anything, but they are pointing their barrels towards the crowd in case there's any um, attempts by them to breach that border. You can hear the loudspeaker announcement as well. So if you don't follow orders, force may be used against you. Well, as I say, it has been an increasingly desperate plight for these people that have come in from various parts of the world, including Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan. I met somebody from Cameroon earlier as well. And the situation shows no sign at this point of getting any better. With each day that passes, this refugee crisis is getting worse. Desperate migrants here in Belarus are camped against the razor wire set up by Poland to keep them out. Their dream of a new life in Europe, in sight, but out of reach. From above, amid choking thick smoke from fires to keep warm, you can see how more than 2,000 migrants from countries like Iraq and Syria are stretched along this frontier and facing an emergency exclusion zone on the other side. Why, why going with migrants like Ahmed and his 15-year-old daughter Reza from Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, country uh, dangerous. Your country? Yes. Country yes. dangerous. Yes. Um, country dangerous. Uh, 
no water, electric. Yes, no, no electricity. Electric, no water, mm, dangerous. Uh, yeah, this is Kurdistan, Kurdistan. Iraqi Kurdistan. Yeah. It's getting dangerous here too. Already Putin's Russia is backing its Belarusian ally. US officials accuse Belarus of weaponizing these migrants in revenge for human rights sanctions. There is a blame game being played here. The West, the European Union, Poland is blaming Belarus for encouraging these migrants to come here in the first place and then pushing them here towards the border. Belarus and Moscow are blaming the Poles for refusing to let them in. But it's these people stuck in the middle that are actually paying the price. A point with which they seem to agree. Attention, attention, attention to the police inform. If you don't follow the orders, force may be used against you. From loudspeakers across the fence, this is Poland's uncompromising message. Don't even try it. Attention, attention. But that's not stopping daily attempts to break through. Belarusian officials deny helping breach the frontier, but they're not stopping it. I want to look after for my family. And, and how many of your family are here? Two, two, two family. Two my families? Wife, yeah, my wife, my son, and my, my friend. I have three, three kids right. and wife. Karwan, also from Iraqi Kurdistan, tells me he's tried and failed to get past the razor wire. Forced back, he says, with tear gas and pepper spray. Now I want to kiss you for my, my son. My son say, my dad, don't kiss me because you after you kiss me, my son say, you kiss me, it's so bad for your face, my son. So, because the tear gas yeah, exactly, and, the, and the pepper spray? Exactly. There's oh. no go. Long time, uh, I have, I have uh, too many chili, too many gas. I want to kiss for my son. It's my son, so please, my dad, don't and, and, kiss me. And you've got the chili and the, and the yeah. pepper spray by trying to get across the border. They've sprayed it on you. Yeah, exactly. Please, please. Over the weekend, even more refugees have been flooding in, piling on the pressure. Belarusian officials tell us 5,000 people will be here in a matter of days, all desperate, freezing and trapped. Matthew Charles reporting there from the crisis at the Belarus border. We will bring you any further details as we get it from the EU foreign ministers making decisions today on further sanctions on Belarus. In the meantime, breaking news just moments ago, Steve Bannon turning himself into authorities in Washington, D.C. You can see him there behind all the cameras and the journalists taken just moments ago. That was expected today. And as you can see, turning himself into authorities in just the last few moments former advisor there to the Trump administration. We'll bring you any further details as we get them. For now, we'll be back after this. Welcome back to First Move as we fight to save the planet. More people are looking to make informed choices when traveling, which is why Booking.com is launching a travel sustainable badge. It's based on 32 standards that properties can adopt, such as eliminating single-use plastic in toiletries and investing some of the profits into the local community. You can see some of the main categories on the screen there to discuss it. Glenn Fogel is the president and CEO of Booking Holdings, the company behind Booking.com and several other travel-related brands like Rentalcars.com and open table. Glenn, it's always great to have you on the show. You can talk us through what this represents, because I know the decision is based on your research, which shows a whopping 81% now of people saying, look, I, I want to stay somewhere that's helping to protect the planet. This is good news. 
Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, we're so happy to be able to get this out today. Having that badge, essentially helping people know what kind of accommodation is providing sustainable practices. As you point out, 81% of the people say they want to travel sustainable, but they don't know how, and they don't know which properties are doing the right things. And by putting that badge out there, we're helping people understand what properties are the ones that are doing what we all hope is make the world a better place. How are you judging them on what metrics and how are you verifying that, that what they're saying? Because you cover many, many different properties all over the world. How are you verifying that actually they're doing what they say and that when somebody comes onto your website and selects a sustainable place to, to be and to stay, they're actually getting what you're promising? Yes. No, that is an issue because it, just because somebody says they're doing something sustainable, right. are they really doing it or not? And even more so, even if they were doing it at one point in time, did they stop doing it? So we have different method, methods. Certainly, people who are providing us independent certifications from third-party sustainable consultancies and pr prove that they're doing it. That's helpful. Certainly, when people send us their own uh, information, we can send someone from our local partner services to actually do an audit. Or even more so, we have things where we can survey customers when they've stated a property and tell us, did they actually have what they said they have? You know, we have people who tell us they have a pool at the hotel. Well, it's pretty fast to find out if there's no pool because people say, hey, they said they had a pool, there's no pool. Same thing. So they tell us they do LED lighting and uh, get, we survey guests and guess, no, no, they're the old style incandescents. No, we have no LED lighting there. We'll find out pretty darn fast and we'll be able to take uh, them off that badge. Yes. No one wants to be swimming in a duck pond outside instead of a pool. So you're right. We have, no. to, we have to verify no. ourselves. Um, is it going to cost more? Because I do feel like people are very pro saving the planet until they're faced with the prospect of perhaps paying a bit more money. And particularly at this point in time where we're all facing rising prices, just as basics in, in the standards and costs of our living. Is it going to cost more to be more sustainable? And is that something we just have to accept? You know, one of the things we've been looking very closely at is how important it is to provide ways to be sustainable and also increase profitability for our supplier partners. Right. Hotels that telling them and helping them learn, look, and let's go to that LED example again. Make the investment LED lighting. Sure, it costs more upfront, but you're going to have a higher profit margin because it costs less electricity. And helping them learn what methods, what things can they do so they can be sustainable and be more profitable. It's a win-win-win. And we want to make sure we're using market forces to drive this. Yeah, I mean, it has to be that in order to make it sustainable and sustainable, I think. Um, Glenn, talk to me about the recovery that you're seeing, because I was just showing some of the top lines from your recent earnings. And I know travel is recovering. Your revenues are returning in, in leaps and bounds, too, which is good news. But there are still hotspots around the world that are challenged. And we're also seeing rising COVID cases, which I know you're battling, too. What are you seeing ultimately and what are your predictions? I know it's difficult for the next three to six months. And who's traveling? Are vaccinated people traveling internationally more than the un? Absolutely. If you're vaccinated, people are ready to go and people are doing it. We see in the U.S., for example, with the administration opening up inbound travelers from around the world if they're vaccinated. And last week, we saw so many happy pictures of people who hadn't seen friends or family for almost a year and a half. And getting together, it was just lovely to see those hugs on TV and in photos. Here's the thing about this, though. This pandemic's not done. And we are seeing these hot spots. Unfortunately, in Europe particularly, we're seeing some increases that are somewhat disconcerting. What we really need is for everybody around the world, 
If you're able to get a vaccination, please go and do it. That's the way we'll get out of this faster. And I just would wish everybody would please go forward and get a vaccination. Yeah. Do you see the response? Do you see people instantly when they see the headlines on the media saying there are rising cases in certain parts of the world? Do you instantly feel a chilling effect in your bookings? Yeah, we can see that. Absolutely. And when a country puts up some restrictions, we'll see cancellations right away, too. So there's definitely a high correlation between what is the rate of infection, what are the government uh, rules and what that's going to do to travel. And that's why it's so important that we all get together, do all the right things to drive out this pandemic so we can go back to travel the way we used to do it. Yeah, let's get us back to some form of normality as soon as possible, please. Um, We recently had the president of Airbnb on, and I know you for many years in the United States have been in the sort of home rental game. He was announcing all sorts of measures to try and attract hosts, but also give customers better options at the same time. For hosts, it was insurance, it was Wi-Fi testing, for example. How hot and competitive is this market now, not only to attract people that are traveling and coming back to traveling, but also those that are willing to to host and provide their homes for, for people to stay in? Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of competition. We are very competitive with Airbnb and the other players in the space. And these things that in terms of showing the customer why you should, why you should use our service versus another service is really important. And there is a shortage of hosts. There's no doubt about that. In certain hot spots around the world for travel, where people always like to go, well, there's a shortage there. So it's important that we all try and find hosts who want to be part of the system, want to help provide uh, accommodation to others, and that will help build travel. And that's a work in progress. Absolutely. We're always trying to make things better. Glenn, great to chat to you, as always. Glenn Frogel, the CEO and president of Bookings Holdings. Let's hope people travel more sustainably and that that's sustainable too. That's the phrase, I think, of the show. Thank you. Up next, thank you. Shell makes a break for Britain. The old giant leaves the Netherlands for what it hopes is a brighter future in London. Welcome back to First Move. Call it a royal retreat, perhaps. A shell-shocked Dutch government is calling Shell's decision to move its headquarters to the UK as, quote, an unwelcome surprise. The energy giant is also dropping its dual share structure and the Royal Dutch from its name. Anna Stewart joins me now. That was the raw retreat part of my uh, introduction there, just in case anyone missed it. Um, They've been coming under pressure from all sides, from the Dutch, from environmental groups to do more to transition to more renewable energy. Does this help them or does this hinder them? What are they saying and what do we think? Well, in terms of Royal Dutch Shell, they're saying this is going to simplify the structure. It will allow them to accelerate uh, shareholder distributions. But it is facing so much pressure, particularly when we look at climate change, of course, on the heels of COP26. And that comes from outside and inside. So on the outside, in the Netherlands, you've got the Dutch courts, which are trying to force the company to accelerate its reduction of CO2 emissions. That's something Royal Dutch Shell are actually appealing. And then very recently, from within inside the company, you have shareholders also wanting to see some of that, or in the case of activist investor Third Point, which revealed 
They had built up a stake very recently. They would like to see the, the company split in two. It is not doing that. It is simplifying its structure. But I think it's also very interesting, quite aside from all of those climate pressures, to consider the fact that this is very similar to what Unilever did last year. And the big cause of that, of course, were those unfriendly taxations on dividends. That's something Shell also faces. It's managed to sidestep it with its dual-class share structure. That was never meant to be permanent. And I think this has been a long time coming. And finally, it's here. Yeah, and the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, said to them, look, we're going to lose another company, I believe. He was warning that Royal mm-hmm. Dutch Shell may end up leaving, and, and here we are. So the Dutch government's clearly not happy. Analysts, on the other hand, I think seeing future stock buybacks potentially are very excited about this move. Rubbing mm-hmm. their hands with glee. I mean, the Dutch government, in terms of the economy and climate minister, he said in a tweet today, it came as an unpleasant surprise. So clearly a bit sidelined by all of this. They are in talks with Shell going forwards about all of the implications. They say Shell have assured them that in terms of personnel changes, this will just involve some executives and board members moving to the UK, relocating, including the CEO. Um, but as you say, analysts very happy because, of course, this will boost um, the share buyback program that we've already been seeing and investors seem pretty happy. The stock opened 2.6% higher. It's fallen back a little bit. This is going to need a lot of investor support. It needs 75% support with that vote coming up quite soon, actually, in the December AGM. So all eyes on that, Julia. Yeah, and I know third point was saying separate the old legacy part of the business from the new push to renewables. And they're saying, actually, we need the old legacy part of the oil and gas business in order to fuel the uh, move and shift to renewables. So um, we shall see. But for now, no longer royal, just shell in the UK. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. And finally, on first move, rumour has it that Adele has just made one young couple extremely happy. The pop superstar pleading with fans to be quiet during last night's televised special in the United States. In the audience, a woman wearing blindfolds and noise-cancelling headphones and her boyfriend. They were led to the stage and he got down on one knee. And when the blindfolds came off, she got the surprise of her life. And of course, she said yes. Call it a new way for Adele to send her love to fans. Congratulations to them. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.